Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. All right, we've got the Climbing Gold crew here, Lisi, Lauren, and Alex. And I'm just going to dive in because we've got a friend of the show, legendary professional climber, Jonathan Segrist. Because this is now this is now two episodes featuring the world's best rock climber, Jonathan Segrist. Wow. <laughs> I'm not the world's best rock climber. <laughs> well, you know, just, I'm just going to keep slipping it in and seeing, seeing what happens. <laughs> at, some point, at some point, I'll be just too tired to correct you. Anyway. All right. So we will be back next week with the next installment of our four-part series, uh, The Greatest Lie. But in the meantime, with all of us here, we thought it would be um, worth kind of exploring lying in climbing today on both a professional and recreational level. Does it happen? Um, How often? And should we care? Here we go. This is Climbing Gold. Uh, what are we talking about today? We are talking about lying or cheating in climbing, basically. On Climbing Gold, we've been talking about territory and the debacle around Maestri's decision to basically make up the fact that he had originally climbed the mountain. Um, and basically all the all the events that spiral outward from that lie. And it brought up the sort of topic of like, well, that's really interesting. Like, what place does lying have in climbing? Because I think there's been a, a, a trend where people are saying like, well, it's, you know, everyone's about their own word and that people have sort of thought on a level like, hey, people are going to be honest in climbing. But that makes no sense because someone with a serial lying problem or 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 lying, like there's no way that we've got a little corner of the the universe where no one lies, right? Like that's just not realistic to think that way. And so is there lying in climbing? And then how prevalent do you guys think it actually is? I, before recording this, like I, <clears throat> I thought a bit about this and my personal opinion would be that blatant lying, like making things up that didn't actually happen. I don't know how prevalent that is. I think that's quite rare from my experience. Um, I think that bending the truth or omitting certain details about a sense or about something that happened, I think that that is relatively prevalent, but I wouldn't say that any of these things, or at least I'd like to believe that I don't think that any of these things are super frequent. And or I think it's I think a it's, problem. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say that it's a huge problem. Yeah, I, I yeah. agree that it all exists, obviously, but it's just not a problem per se. It's not like this is the number one issue facing climbers. You know, it's like, it's so rare. I'm just curious, like, like on a professional level with you two, you know, is that is that something that that people talk about kind of outside of the like public view? I mean, I think hardly ever. I think that the the known big lies in climbing, like say Maestri claiming to to climb Saratora, or you know, fabricating his ascent of Saratora, I think that the the known big lies of climbing are already known, mm-hmm. and there aren't that many like full fakes out there. I mean, I think that the the thing that's much more common and the thing that people do talk about all the time are the 
you know, fudging style a little bit, you know, or, or sort of not necessarily lies, but sort of omissions about exactly how an ascent took place or like in what style. I mean, and, and so to give a personal example, I mean, uh, you know, if somebody was really nitpicking, they could say that I've, you know, faked an ascent because I frequently say that Tommy and I free climbed this new route on El Cap a couple of years ago, uh, past freedom. And technically we both fell on one of the upper pitches on the last day and did it again from a stance. And so we didn't really technically send the last 13D pitch. We kind of did it in two pieces, but it's because we planned to be on the wall for three days and we were already on the end of day four and Tommy was about to miss Halloween with his family. And we were like, we got to get down in the next two hours or Tommy is going to get divorced, you know? <laughs> and so we were sort of like, we got to get this done. And there's the no hands in the middle of the pitch. And we were both kind of like, you know what? We just did what we did. And, you know, we're happy to explain the style, but, but, you know, some people consider good style for doing a first ascent leading every pitch and we just didn't do that at all you know we took turns we each led half the pitches we each fell all over the place and then re-red pointed pitches and and so when you really think about it it was terrible style but (laughs) but you know we're both happy with it we climbed the route it's fine and we would both just say that we climbed the route but it's like those kinds of you know omissions are i think the thing where people get into trouble like in that in that particular case, I don't think it's that bad, but but there are plenty of things like that that people do that are maybe a bit worse where you're like, oh, so did you climb the route? Like, I don't know if I consider that climbing the route. And they're like, no, no, I yeah. feel good about it. And you're like, well, I wouldn't feel good about it. So that's weird. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's not an omission in this circumstance because you just shared the entire story and what, you know, the style in which you climbed it. I think like... For me, yeah, I agree that there's very little lying from the standpoint of people being like, I did this route when they didn't actually do the route. Um, But I do think there is a lot of lying at like a low level in the sport. And it's these like little things, like these little like emissions about how you actually did the route and in what particular style that that are constant in our sport. There really has been for a very long time, that standard of like, oh, well, you take a climber at their word. So someone says they've done something, you know, they provide a fair amount of details, it's, it's good to go. But there's also instances where that hasn't, you know, it's kind of like cropped up and people have been like, huh, that's interesting. Do you think it's maybe time to like move on from those standards? And obviously I think there's like certain things that are more complex, but you know, I, I Daniel Woods has called that like, if you're sending something hard, you need to have uncut footage of it. And I'm curious, like, whether we just raise the bar. I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of anti-raising standards like that. Because, I mean, the whole point is to take people at their word. Like, you shouldn't require people to, to video their ascents. I mean, in some ways, it's, like, slightly douchey to record every time you go climbing. You know, it's like, if the point is to have a beautiful experience in nature, it's like, are, is it better by setting up a tripod and recording each time you attempt this thing that you've been working on? And particularly if you're working on some long-term project that you, you try 50 or 100 times, like, do you want the added pressure of setting up your camera every single time being like, this could be the burn? It's like, sometimes you want to just not think about it, tie in, just try your best and see what happens. And so if you miss your, your uncut send, does that make it any less real? It's like, no. I mean, you still had a belayer. You still, like, it's pretty rare that people are out sessioning their hardest boulders by themselves, like in the dark or something. And that does happen sometimes. And maybe if you're totally alone in the middle of nowhere, then yeah, maybe you should set up your camera. But in general, it's, you know, just take people at their words. But I just, yeah, I wonder too, like the role of, I mean, this, I feel like when we're talking about like, is this a problem in climbing? It's really for professional climbers. Like no one really cares what I did this weekend. I'm not a professional climber. 
common really moderate stuff. Like if I lie about it, maybe it makes me kind of douchey, but like no one, I don't have any responsibility, I feel like, to the climbing community, to be honest, because like I'm not an ambassador for this sport in the way that like you guys are, you know, and the things that you're doing are like but, things that people seem to really care about. But you about. have a responsibility to yourself to not be a douche. And I think that's, well, probably, totally the, like that's I, probably the more important thing in a lot of ways. Just to like, but I feel like, yeah, when we think about like the media reporting on things, you know, it's like that doesn't happen to me. And so I like don't feel like, oh, I better record this. I'm like, <laughs> I better record me like trying this, my 11B Pine Creek project just in case I do it. And one day someone's like, did you really do that? You know, <laughs> like that's never going to happen to me. So I feel like I don't know what it's like to like feel that pressure. And I guess I wonder if you guys have ever done something where you felt like, oh, I wonder if people are going to doubt this or like this is enough of a thing that the sport's going to care about that I should make sure to document it, you know, or I wonder too, for like big solos, Alex, like if you feel more like, oh, is anyone going to like come back at me? You know, like we talked to Colin Haley about this for the Cerro Torre episode too, about how he's been doubted, especially because he does so many things way out there in the mountains by himself that there's no, no one's witnessing it. And so he feels a little bit more pressured to document, especially on solos. And he was doubted when he was a young kid. Like, because he was just like this like little babe in the mountains that all of a sudden went and did this completely burly thing. And people are like, really? Did the the 16-year-old from Mercer Island just go do the gnarliest thing possible in the Cascades in the middle of winter? And like, I think he realized that he would need to up his standards of documentation right from the start. You know, and of course he, he did do all that stuff. But yeah, actually, Alex, I'm curious, like, I feel like you kind of exploded onto the core climbing scene. Like I think from broader level, like, you know, you slowly became more and more known in the outside world. But in the beginning, it kind of felt like that Moonlight solo that you did was probably, I don't know if you'd ever had any coverage before that, but everyone was like, holy good God, someone just soloed Moonlight and who is this person? And whether there were, you know, I, I mean, I think there were photos of it, obviously, but did you feel like, oh, you had to document that? that there had to be photos of it. You know, how did that unfold? Because I think that there, that is like what your craft, particularly that side, has the conditions where there's a lot of things like in places where no one's watching where you've done done your climbing. None of, uh, I mean, it's funny because you say there were photos from Moonlight, but all the photos were taken a year or two later. And same with uh, my, my free solo of Half Dome, which was like another sort of thing that put me on the map. I mean, I didn't film on that until a year later. Um, I mean, all of my initial solos were just taken at my word. I mean, really the only big solos that have actually been filmed in real time were the ones in the film Free Solo. So, uh, you know, El Cap, obviously. And then the things that I did sort of leading up to that training for it. So, uh, say, the excellent adventure on the rostrum and some big walls in Morocco and a handful other routes. But basically everything else I've ever done, I've just gone back and posed later. So, I don't know. I mean, you know, it could all be an elaborate fake, except for El Cap, which they freaking documented with a telescope the entire time. And, th- and then that's kind of one of those <laughs> things is that at a certain point, I mean, the thing about taking people at their word is that to some extent, you just have to ask yourself, can that climber do the things that they claim to do? And, and if the answer is yes, then, you know, you're like, why not take them at their word? It's like, are they able to do the things? You're like, yeah, they probably did. You know, it's just simpler than thinking that it's all a, you know, carefully crafted lie. Mm-hmm. Like if they're able, they probably did not yeah, I actually disagree. I think there are a handful of examples like that. Yeah, but but we can think of like four, right? I mean, when you think of a, it's a big sport, like... Totally. But I'm just saying that I think that there are times when the person is entirely capable of something, but 
I mean, we've all been there when we're really close and we've been trying like hell and maybe there's pressure from media or from friends and it's easier to be misguiding with what has happened for like a professional reason or for a personal stress reason or whatever. I mean, if a random kid from the gym who's never climbed anything harder than like, you know, V5 goes out and says that they flash V10, it's pretty obvious. Like those lies don't go anywhere because it's so clearly not true. Again, like I mentioned in the beginning, I think that blatant lying, like saying that something happened when it actually didn't happen at all, I think that that's incredibly rare, as you just mentioned, Alex. But I do think that there are times when it's really beneficial to the individual, especially a professional, to bend the truth or to withhold certain details that might not necessarily make the difference between doing something and not doing something, but it might change the way that their sponsors or the public or the media perceives the importance of what it is that they did. We can have a conversation about how important that is, because I agree with you. Like, ultimately, I don't think that this is like the worst thing facing climbing right now. But I do think that like kind of a bit to talk about what you mentioned earlier, Lauren, I do think that it's really important even for recreational climbers. You're not a recreational climber. You're a very good rock climber. But I'm just saying like any level of rock climber, I really strongly believe that if there's not honesty everywhere, then it's just eroding these values of rock climbing that we all hold dear to us and that we all associate with rock climbing and with this pursuit. And so it might not seem like much, but I think that if there is like a member of a local community who's always lying about something or always changing the truth about what it is that they've done, I think that that can impact climbing in maybe not in the same way that like as a top level professional lying about something or, or misleading people. But I don't want to get to a point in the sport where I feel like I need to record every single route that I've ever done, because to be honest, it would be an enormous pain in the ass and it's almost impossible to do. And in order to not cross that bridge, I think that we have to make honesty incredibly important and we have to share that ideal around, not just in the professional community, but also in like the everyday climbing community. We have to remind one another that honesty is really important. And if that means that you stepped on a bolt or if it means that you didn't clip the chains before you fell or, you know, whatever it is, like, I think that those little reminders, you know, as long as they're done softly, I think it is actually, I think it's more important than we might lead it on to be. We'll be back with more after the break. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete-tested and expedition-proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next-generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-bitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. Their Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, 
So I only need to charge it once every several weeks. <laughs> I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. <laughs> if you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing, training, and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Coros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Summer Citrus Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I go on. They're offering listeners 20% off any purchase for new customers with the code CLIMBINGGOLD, or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Along that vein with, uh, you know, honesty in the broader community is what happens when climbers don't even technically know what the terms mean or, you know, what an ascent is. And I'm thinking specifically of my mother-in-law yeah. who was just boasting about her uh, Pilates instructor, who, who she was very proud of. She's like, oh, she climbed 513 in the gym. And I was like, there is no way she climbed 513 in the gym. So I dug a little deeper and I was like, well, so you mean on top rope, right? And she was like, yeah, yeah, I think on top rope. And I was like, and did she climb it cleanly from the bottom to the top? She was like, no, no, I'm sure she hung a bit. And I was like, oh, well, so I don't know if I consider that climbing 513 in the gym. I would call that attempting a 513 in the gym, you know. And so when you dug a little deeper, but, but you know, my mother-in-law, I wouldn't exactly call her a, a liar in climbing, but, you know, she's just thrown around. I mean, actually, and my, and my mom does the same thing with like, oh, I climbed this. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't call that climbing it if you didn't lead it and you didn't do it free. You know, it's like if you hung all over the place, that's not really technically sending. But the thing is, I think for the really recreational, casual climber, it just, the terms don't really matter. You know, it's like they're out having an experience in nature. They're trying their best. They're like having a big thing. It's like, do they need to know the difference between onsighting and flashing? It's like, who freaking cares? They're, they're, they're just up there trashing, you know, they're, they're TR flashing. <laughs> it's like, if you, yeah, totally. If you, but if you miss, if you misunder, cause I've, I've actually experienced the same thing. I've talked to climbers in clinics and stuff like that. And they've told me I've climbed this. And what they meant is that they started at the bottom and they got to the top by any means necessary. Yeah, um, using, it doesn't using mean that they've like red pointed the room, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. But if but if someone's confused about terminology, that's quite a bit different than if a beginner climber literally said, I started at the bottom and I got to the top and I never weighted the rope when they actually did. You know, I mean, that's yeah. that's like clearly a difference. So I hear you. I think some people, and I, and I think that, Probably when it comes to actually climbing something, that would only happen with a relatively beginner group of people. But I do think that there is some misunderstanding as far as like what a flash constitutes, what an onsite constitutes, what a try constitutes. I mean, that's yeah, a little that's, that's higher the classic, level, but I think that that's, I think that that's like, something. Yeah. I did a second yeah, try after very... two years of working on it. And you're like, yeah. wait, yeah. like second red point attempt after two years of top roping it. And you're like, does that count as your second attempt? And you're like, you've been working on this <laughs> Actually, your whole my, life. My, yeah, like a... my favorite uh, like theory, theory, like logical um, conversation to have in regards to that is if you weren't ever trying to red point if you just accidentally did the route on one of your working burns does that mean you did it in zero tries <laughs> <laughs> is that on i think it does i think or it's better it, than on siding <laughs> well i mean we've uh, you know i mean the two of us I, w- I would consider us both you know scrupulously honest professional climbers and yet we, we sort of disagree on flashing versus on siding and some of the finer points just because 
I just don't really care that much. Like if I've done the bottom of a route before, but then onsite the rest, I'm like, I still call it onsiding because it's the same experience, it's the same freaking thing. You know, I, I think of, I differentiate those more by the, the character of the experience, which is a totally personal assessment. Whereas by the strict rules of climbing, if you've ever been on any part of the route before, then it's no longer onsiding. But I'm like, man, it was, you know, however much time ago and like the difficulty doesn't change. I'm like, who freaking cares? You know, like, no, I think it's more like, think, what's up? Where you don't, you can retro on site? No, no, not you that. I'm, I'm talking you... <laughs> about like I'm talking about like doing an extension to something. He's talking about routes that have like a shared first shared bolt start. or yeah. something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Like... And I, some of my, I, I do remember the conversation we had about that some years ago, and I've softened a little bit on that. And again, in my opinion, like here's the thing: let's say you did a route and it shares the first two bolts, and you on site the right variation. And then you come back three weeks later and you on-site the left variation, but it shares the first two bolts, you know? We can come up with some kind of elaborate, like, I, I know Adam Andra has some kind of elaborate, like, uh, protocol that he uses. Like, if the if the shared part of climbing is is X number of grades below the overall route, yeah, and blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, that's you know, exactly We can come up with that. And, and I do think that there is something to be said about coming up with that. But ultimately... What's important, in my opinion, is just disclose that information. It's not that hard. Like, you're, it doesn't change the exact accomplishment that you have or had. It just changes the way that people understand the accomplishment that you've had. And I think that for me, when it comes to honesty, and, you know, it's really hard to be perfect all of the time, but I think that disclosing those pieces of information as often as possible is the difference. Like, and if you log something on 8A as an onsite and then you said in your comment, I had already done XYZ at the bottom, I wouldn't be like, no, it cannot be a blue box. It has to be a yellow, you know, it has to, you have to change the designation of this. I wouldn't say that at all because I would say, look, he, he's being honest about, he himself considers this an onsite and here is why you know, and he's and he's explained to people why they might not consider it that. I feel like what's nice too about that is that it like gives you some opportunity to like still be proud of your the thing that you have done, right? With like, if you want to put a little asterisk on it, you know, and say that like that's good enough for you, then I feel like it's a cool way to be able to still to not feel like only perfection is like the thing required but I absolutely and then like sometimes those asterisks like kind of eat at you and you feel like you need to go back and like improve on the style you know but like in Alex in your example it's like maybe you put an asterisk on your El Capacent with Tommy but like doesn't seem like it's really bothering you you don't feel the need to like go back and <laughs> like really you know scrub that off so it's super clean but like sometimes you'd have something where it felt like oh it just wasn't the best style that I that I care to do and I'm like go back and do it better but I feel like having that space, you know, is kind of nice that like not everything has to be held to like the highest level of perfection as long as you're honest about it, I guess. Totally. And that and that's the thing is like depending on the size of the asterisks, <laughs> so the accomplishment could still be amazing. And it could be one of the greatest things that you feel like you've overcome. And you know, you shouldn't be robbed of the ability to share that, but you know, making sure that all the details are there in reporting, especially at a professional level, I think is like something that's super important. So interesting aside here that I feel like is worth adding is that I've always had a climbing journal for the last like 17 years or whatever. I, I record all the things that I do separately in a little notebook. 
And I will say that when you record things for yourself in your own journal, you're much less likely to take whatever the given grade is, or, you know, you're basically more likely to be, you know, scrupulously honest about your style and, and what exactly you did, because it's really just in your own journal to remember the experience and to, and to learn from. And so, you know, I find that when I log roots on 8a.nu, let's say like, you know, sort of climbing website, it feels slightly more performative where you're really logging it so that other people can see it. Or if you're posting on social media, you're doing it so other people can see it. But when you record in your own journal, you're just doing it so that you can remember what you did and, and that you can learn from however you did it. I mean, my journal used to be all full of notes of like, you know, take better layers next time or like, you know, should have gotten up earlier or like, you know, should have had more <laughs> food or water, you know, just like little notes of like, what should I do better on like the next descent or, you know, the next thing. And I find that in my journal, I pretty much always take the low grade because, you know, you're like, who are you performing for? You're kind of like, well, in my heart of hearts, was it that hard? You're like, mm, it probably wasn't. Dude, and then you always take the low grade on 8A too. What are you talking about? Well, yeah, I, I take, I take even the lower grade in your yeah, journal? Yeah, I take even lower <laughs> grades in my journal. Yeah. Holy Well, because on 8A, on 8A, if it's like pretty consensus at a higher grade, you're kind of like, oh, do I want to be the one that stirs the pot? Or, you know, you're like, who cares? You just, you know, half the time. Dude, 8A, you always you are whatever. the one that stirs the pot. Not, not this always. Is, this is why, this is partly why I respect you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, but anyway, I just think that having a personal journal is a great way to, I don't know, to, to better understand how much of your climbing is performative versus personal and, and like how much that affects you know, it's like, yeah, I think that's awesome. In some ways, yeah. it's the the polar opposite of recording every ascent to make sure that people can see the uncut raw footage. Because you're like, you know what? I did it for mm -hmm. me. It's in my journal. That's good enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Well, I think it's funny that you mentioned something like 8A. And I wonder if you think that you have a little more leeway, you know, or if like the standards change or if lying or being kind of dishonest is more common in one type of climbing, you know, or one venue than another. Well, I, I think shenanigans so. are way more common in alpinism and in big wall climbing, just because the conditions dictate weird trickery. I mean, the thing with a sport crag is that you're always comfortable, well-fed. You always show up at the, at the wall feeling pretty good. And then you always try your best. <laughs> you always start at the bottom. You know, with big walls, there's just always something where you're like, oh, on my last burn, when I fell, I ripped two pieces of gear and then the other piece got fixed. And so I just left it in. And so now I'm doing yeah. it with pre-placed gear because it just like doesn't make sense to try to clean the pieces because I'm worried that that one is going to pop or, you know, like weird things like that. Like I've done tons of hard wall climbs where it's like, oh, well, technically I pink pointed the crux pitch because it was like too much of a hassle totally. to take all the gear back out. But I generally mm -hmm. do that because I don't really care. You know, I'm like, I just don't think that placing the gear would make that particular pitch that much harder for me anyway. So it's like, I'm just going to do whatever's safest and fastest and like, it's chill, you know, but technically mm -hmm. if you reported in the magazine, you'd be like, oh, you know, he's cheating on the crux and you're like, whatever. But that's because nobody, I'm not doing the hardest routes in the world. So it's like, nobody cares anyway. It's just like personal climbing in my backyard. You're like, I'll just do it however I want. Do you think that, you know, we've talked about these like more complex situations, right? Like there are places that are further out. There's like extenuating circumstances and maybe the style changes a little bit or the definition of success really. But I think, you know, I, I'm curious, like, does this ever happen in bouldering? You know, like, are there people like, like, are there debates about this in bouldering? Are there, does it impact other parts of the sport other than just the sort of, you know, I would say kind of burly, um, 
big wall or alpine climbing. I think the uh, the debates in bouldering are just so lame that you just don't care. You know, they're just so, they're so niche. They're so particular. You know, it's like, oh, well, he started with his hands crossed on the starting hold, whereas the first ascensionist started with his hands matched. And, you know, and actually that one foot wasn't there before because it washed out in a recent storm. And then, you know, they found this new foothold down below the boulder. You're like, dude, who cares? You know, it's like, I just, I just think the arguments in bouldering are just, I, you know, it's, it just, yeah, it just makes me slightly sad. It's, <laughs> it's like too niche. So you're not a sit star guy then, Alex? No, I mean, I'm, I'm all for sit stars, but I just like boulders to be <laughs> big and proud. You know, it's like, I just feel like when boulders get into little spats about like who did what and how, it's just always on like the, on things that seem completely trivial in the grand scheme of mm. like climbing big walls or climbing mountains or whatever else. You know, it's like, oh, you know, he stacked two pads to do the sit start because he's actually a foot shorter than the other guy that did it. You know, and you're kind of like, I think that's fine. Like, that's freaking like no problem, you know? It's yeah. Like, I get the sense that there's a little bit more, the boulders might be slightly more armed for lying than other disciplines in the sport because it is so much easier to lie in bouldering. Mm. You're, you know, you can go alone, you can try a problem alone with crash pads. You know, and you could end up putting in, if it's a remote boulder problem, you could put 10 days of effort into something and maybe even never see anyone. Where like in sport climbing, it's pretty difficult to go to a crag, especially one that has, you know, some of the hardest routes in the world or whatever, and try a project more than one day and not have at least a few people see how your progress is going and like see what's going on. And there's this obvious piece too, where you need a belayer. And that's why anytime that there's been any bending of truth in sport climbing and people can't come up with a belayer, that's an immediate giant red flag to me because yeah, yeah, obviously totally you have a belayer. And <laughs> to be honest, like I can remember who belayed me on probably almost every hard route that I've ever done because it was a memorable day. And if it was that huge, you would, you would not forget, right? Um, but in bouldering, I think th there's a little more speculation about that kind of stuff. And partly because of that, at least what I've seen like online and forums and on Instagram and whatever, I think there's more, there's a higher demand for uncut footage for really hard boulders. Um, and it's so much easier to just have a GoPro running in the background for your whole session and then edit out what you want or don't want that I can kind of understand in that regard, especially if you're completely alone. I mean, if you're at a boulder, if you're at like, if you're climbing evolution and there's 40 people there and more pads than there are in the spot in boulder colorado then i don't think you need to be like recording all the time for for uh honesty purposes but otherwise yeah i can see why why there would be a little bit more discussion about lying and stuff like that in bouldering and again i'm not entrenched in the, that community well enough to know how frequent that happens or or any other pieces about it but i can i can see it being more of an issue there's actually a kind of a recent example in Vegas of some drama within the bouldering community around lying, but sort of like just changing the style of a boulder. So there's this really famous boulder here called Americana Exotica. That's a V10. And the other day I overheard there was this like group of like 20 people or so in the gym and they were having this like intense argument. And I like started listening in. So I was like, what is going on? Is there about to be a fight in the gym? Like what's happening? And, <laughs> <laughs> and they were talking about the release of 
the new guidebook here in Vegas um, that was written by Tom Mulan. It's the third edition of the Southern Nevada Bouldering Guide. And in the book, he had clarified that Americana Exotica starts on very specific holds. And that's because apparently a lot of new people that have moved to Vegas in the recent year or so have been climbing it out to the left and taking V10 for the problem. And so Tom clarified in the book, like, hey, it's not V10 when you start on the left. And so they, in the gym, there was this huge argument about like whether the route started or the problem starts on the left and you can take V10 for that or it starts you know, to the right and you can take V10 for that. And I thought it was really interesting to listen to because it is something that like impacts and influences the community as a whole, right? When a bunch of people start starting in a different on different holds and take the same grade for the same problem that's actually a different problem or a variation of the problem but then you know ultimately over time like that's generational knowledge that could get passed down and problems get like softer and softer and softer and so I'm, i don't know i'm curious like what we think about that no the obvious thing is that the problem just becomes v9 and you started on the left you know, well, sure. I mean, I think those are those are matters of style, like on specific routes. Like, I mean, this goes back to the knee barring conversation or or really just any issues of technique. Like, oh, did you hand jam through the crux and you made it a lot easier? It's like, I mean, it always just comes back to being honest about what you've done and, and whether or not that's in line with what the first ascensionist did. And, uh, you know, and if you did something that's easier then you just say you did something easier and you take whatever grades appropriate. It's better to exceed expectations than than sort of underperform. You know, it's it's better to totally. have somebody, uh, yeah, you know, introduce you as having done less than you've done because you're like, oh, at least I know that that uh, you know, you can still feel good about that. But yeah, it's it's terrible yeah. when somebody introduces. I mean, when someone legitimately is like, you're the best climber in the world, and you're like, oh man, you're like, no, because then you got to give a whole long talk about Adamandra and <laughs> Alex Megos and, <laughs> yeah, and exactly. all these other people, and you're kind of like. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, we do share a name, but he's actually a lot, a lot better, like way better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then because then you're just reminded of your own. Yeah, exactly, uh, your own failings. You're, yeah. you're like, look, I think about it every day, yeah, how exactly. much worse I am than these other people. And so now yeah. I'm going to have to go through this whole 20 minute thing of describing to you why that's true. Yeah, but so so the challenge, though, with mainstream media is like if you're on Jimmy Kimmel, let's say, and you know that your whole bit is going to be three and a half minutes. And he gives an intro where he's like, welcome to the best climber in the world. And everybody starts to applaud. And you're sort of like, I'm not going to spend the three minutes that I have on stage explaining <laughs> that Alex Megos is a better rock climber than I am. Because you're like, it just doesn't really make sense. And so I think that that's where issues like this sometimes arise, though, because with mainstream media, you are cognizant of the fact that this is a very fast, short interview. So all you really can say is like, oh, I don't know if that's true, but I appreciate it. Great to be here. And then you keep going. You know, and so, yeah, yeah. Like, well, you know, in that particular case, you're kind of like, well, it's not like the most scrupulously honest thing you could say, but you are just working with what you have. You know, you're like, like freaking uh, in this particular, I mean, this is a real example that I've used it. Uh, freaking, uh, what's his name? Uh, 50 Cent was coming on right after me. And you're kind of like, you know, like they don't freaking care who rock climbs better in the world. Like they're waiting for 50 Cent to come on and freaking <laughs> yeah, do his performance. I'm kind of like, I just need to get off the stage so that 50 can come on. You know, you're like, <laughs> Okay, well, on that note, when I get my first Jimmy Kimmel interview, I'll make sure to go to you for some uh, publicist and just general like marketing information. Yeah, I <laughs> need some counseling. We'll be back with more after the break. 
Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration, and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're a new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Well, I think that, I mean, I think that that is actually at the heart of some of the, the sort of lies of omission in climbing is that it just takes too long to explain exactly what you did or how you did it. And then somebody summarizes it in a way that makes you look slightly better. And you're like, oh yeah, I can just go with that because it's just simpler. It's easier. I mean, I think that's the kind of dangerous slippery slope here. And, and I mean, I'm, I, I actually disagree. I actually think that the vast majority of cases of this type of thing that's happening is from self-reporting. And the reason I say that is because I kind of get it. Like there's so much hard climbing happening all of the time. And it's really a little different for you, Alex, but for a lot of other people in the professional climbing in the industry, it's up to you to, you know, talk about how good you are, (laughs) you know, and talk about and influence people as to how important your most recent accomplishment was. And, you know, I mean, we've all see it, right? It's basically become the Instagram standard for every single post needs to begin with the name of the route, a green check mark, the grade in every possible grading system. So that even if you're tuning in from Brazil, you know exactly (laughs) how hard this person just did exactly how hard the route is like the details of the ascent or exactly what may have just happened. None of that matters because people are just scrolling through and they're basically just like trying to figure out how valuable you are by that first line in whatever photo it is that they post on Instagram. Right. And so I think that because that culture has become so prevalent and it's not just everyday climbers, that's like what 99% of pro climbers are doing as well. It places so much emphasis on you, you know, you, you just have this sense that there's a race, right? Like you're always trying to outperform one another. And why would you even post about something that doesn't meet a certain XYZ category, you know? And I think that kids see that happening. New climbers see that happening. Pros see that happening between each other. And it just kind of breeds this constant sense of, well, you know, it did take me like two months, but it would sound so much cooler if I said I just came and tried it on weekends after, you know, after big training sessions or whatever. Or, well, you know, I did traverse six feet out and grab that jug that no one else in the history of climbing has ever grabbed. But if I say that, then it's not going to look that cool. And nobody's probably going to read below the fact that I did my hardest route and there's a green check mark and here's the grade anyway. So I, I think I can just actually leave that part out. I think that these are the kind of omissions in self-reporting and, and, you know, there's more details, but you kind of get the idea of what I'm talking about. I think these are the kind of things that are a little bit dangerous and not, again, like I don't even think it so much matters just for the pro climbing community. I think that people see in kind of 
sense that happening. And then it trickles down even to the general climbing community, you know, and how you even might talk about things between friends and how you might talk about things, you know, to family and whatever. And I, I love the point you made, Alex, about like, what would you write down in your own personal journal? Because ultimately, we should all be striving to write down that exact thing publicly, right? And it's not always easy. And there is pressure, especially when you're a pro. But I think that in the end, the closest that we can get to that is like the better off we're going to be. I, I kind of wonder if all this stuff, I mean, when you when you ended with there, there is pressure, especially when you're a pro. I wonder if these issues will all be more of a thing as there's more pressure on professional climbers. Because in theory, as the sport grows and as there's more money in the sport and as the stakes are kind of higher, there are bigger audiences, there's, you know, bigger sponsors, those kinds of things. You know, do we think that the added pressure will lead to more lying? I mean, do we wind up like cycling where it's like everybody cheats in a way, at, le- at least used to? I don't actually know enough about modern cycling, but... Uh, you know, where like doping is prevalent and, and that's just like the way everybody plays the game. I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine, but but you're like, you know, if you raise the stakes high enough and everybody feels that much pressure, it's like, yeah, maybe climbing will be afflicted. You know, I mean, that's the point at which maybe we won't take everybody by their word anymore. because you're like, oh, there's just the stakes are too high. But I think uh, right I now, hope not. Just, yeah, I hope not either. Because uh, I'm just yeah, like, I'm it, just it makes me that. think of like, it may, and I hate to get political, but it makes me think of like, the whole Trump era of, in, in pol- of politics where like after a while, if you just keep saying lies, then doesn't even matter what you say, you know? And I, I just see honor and integrity and honesty as such core values of rock climbing and the climbing that I kind of learned to love and the climbing that I've been doing for so long. And like I said before, I just feel like without calling people out, I do think it's really important to try to, perpetuate these values and to, you know, whisper their importance between one another and keep it like at the front of mind. Because I agree with you, Alex, like, I think that that's a possibility. And I think that that would totally, that would suck, you know? I mean, but maybe that, maybe that always will be a core element of climbing that, that taking people at their word will always be part of the sport because there's always going to be aspects of climbing that are done totally alone in the mountains where it's hard to document and it's hard to, you know, I mean, despite the, the, the rises in technology and everything. It's like, it's still just hard to document things when you're by yourself. Like, I mean, free soloing, especially. So you can take a summit photo or something, but you can't really film your free solo, you know, unless it's single pitch. And and even then, I don't know. Basically, there's just always going to be a degree of trust in climbing. Trust. And so I wonder if, you know, maybe, maybe that will just always be part of the sport. Do you guys know the route refiner fire? Uh, Yeah, I, I remember. I remember reading about the controversy. Yeah, like basically there, there's, you know, this route in you know, the desert out in Cal- California out by Barstow. In the mid-90s, a climber goes, does it, says, hey, I did this route, no Blair, same sort of situation. Uh, and it's 14B, which at that point is, there's only, there's only one other 14B in the U.S. at that stage. And so... Super tweak. Super tweak, exactly. And yeah. Randy Levitt, who we've had on the show in the past, <laughs> calls bullshit and it's like, this is like, I've climbed with this person. They're not climbing at that level. This is like totally there. He writes a letter to Climbing Magazine. Uh, it gets published. Randy's like, I'll give this person $1,000 to come back out and climb this route. And, you know, of course that, uh, you know, Boone Speed, who's at that time is like the the strongest American climber, comes down, can't touch the route. Uh, it just like nothing adds up. And then suddenly someone takes a hammer to the holds and they disappear 
and no one ever can like repeat this route again. Um, and it was big enough that the you know this outside magazine covered it, and it's there. And there are some moments where the community has come out and just been like bullshit. We call bullshit, and it doesn't happen that often, but it does happen. It's just such a tricky thing, right? It's like you know there are climbers out there that do have clouds that fall around that people do talk about. And it's like, is there a time when it is right to call bullshit on somebody? To say, hey, you're not actually doing a good enough job with your standards. Is there a moment for that? And why is that so hard? I mean, it's just risky, right? And and, and it's slightly mean. You know, situ- like, what if you're wrong? Yeah, <laughs> I know exactly. Kind of like, oh. I, I think it's just, and ultimately, outdoor, outside rock climbers, like, in some ways, we're in competition with each other, but really not. You know, I, I think that, if it were a World Cup or if it was uh, the Olympics, a lot of competitors would be willing to call somebody out if they knew that they were blatantly cheating or if they had, you know, put their foot on a bolt or whatever. And that actually does happen. But I think that in the realm of like outdoor climbing, the ethics are slightly different. And I'm not going to say that there's more respect because I don't think that that's the right word. But I think that there's a little bit more we want to give everyone an opportunity to, to tell their own truth and to, to trust them without like incredibly solid. I mean, here's a great example. There's several people in the last 10 or 20 years that have been speculated to be chipping boulders, existing boulders or existing roots, right? Eventually, those people, even though the whole community was very certain of who it was, those people weren't ousted until there was literal video proof. And I think that that is an excellent standard and a really hard one to accommodate. But it's kind of like, you know, you don't want to suggest that someone's broken a law without having enough proof to get it through a judge. Yeah, it's the same standard as the legal system. Yeah, exactly. It's like you, 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 have, to, you have to have beyond a reasonable doubt that this person has done something in order to, to make it public because it would be incredibly unfair to them um, if, if you were wrong, you know, if someone was wrong about that. I mean, it's just like normal life. You know, there are always going to be a, a few fraudsters, a few embezzlers, a few outright criminals, you know, a few psychopaths, you know, but there just aren't that many. And, and it's yeah. like, it doesn't really serve anyone to overemphasize it. I mean, then you wind up with like Fox News style, like we're surrounded by violent crime at all times. So like we should be worried. Yeah. And I mean, I think that lying and climbing is much the same way where it's like, you know, People hardly ever lie. You, you know, you can find examples and, and it does happen, but it's like, it's just not that big a problem per se. There's this climbing video that I loved years ago and I still really like it. It's called Auto Route. It's like a Rob Frost video of uh, a couple American climbers driving around Europe like from forever ago. And there's footage of Dave Graham trying biography or realization in Seiyu's and he's getting super close and it's, and he, there's this awesome quote, and I think about it all the time. And he and he says, I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, you know, have you ever had this feeling of like wanting something so bad that you just want to just take it? Feeling so close to something and wanting it so badly and investing so much energy into it that you just feel like you just want to grab it out of thin air. You know what I mean? But to me, like that is so much the value of applying yourself Anyone that's a that's a really like avid climber or someone that really pushes themselves in any activity, 
knows there is a world of difference between being at 99% accomplishment and 100% accomplishment. And I think that that 1% is everything. And that 1% is the difference between you seeing the process through and you truly pushing yourself to your absolute limit. And like, that's where the value is. That's where like all the juice is, is in that last 1%. And so I, I just love that quote from Dave about wanting to just take something, you know, but not being able to. And Dave obviously went back years later or maybe next season even and did uh, one of the earliest sense of biography along with tons of other hard roots and crazy amount of uh, FAs and bouldering and everything. But for the people that may be dishonest or may have lied in the past or are thinking of lying in the future, my only message would be that like that moment of wanting something so bad and not being able to have it Like those are the moments where you really actually grow in climbing. And when you do eventually, hopefully succeed, you'll know that like all those moments leading up to the success, it was worth it to like be in that kind of like pain, you know, and being that middle space. Big thanks to Jonathan for joining the conversation again. Your perspective is always appreciated. You can follow Jonathan on Instagram at Jonathan Segrist. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Fitz Cahal, and Marco Seiler-Gonzalez, with additional help in mixing and mastering from Evan Phillips. Music from Brennan O'Connell and Faring, courtesy of Track Club. Skylar Perwins is our YouTube and social media editor. Our executive producers are Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy for RxR Sports, and Lisey Hendricks and Becca Cahal for Duct Tape Then Beer. Thanks for listening.